Open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 1. I want to play a little word uh, word association. So I'm going to say a word, and I want you to say the first thing that comes into your mind. First thing. Grandchildren. Ten. All right. Sisters. <laughs> Come on. First thing. Sisters. Annoying. Annoying. Yeah. Christmas. Uh, friends. Friends. All right. Hmm. Cousins. <laughs> Family. Family. <laughs> Presents. Lots. Yeah. <laughs> now I have a word association for all of you. Life. Here's what life was to an ancient Roman soldier whose inscription remains with us. Here's what he said. Here's life. To laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game. That is life. (laughs) The Apostle Paul summarized what life meant to him in Philippians chapter 1. Verse 21, let's read there. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. The Apostle Paul makes this famous statement that that many of us uh, could say by memory, for me to live is Christ. In the original language, it literally reads this way, For me to live, Christ. A little word, two, is not in there. For me to live, Christ. One word. What did that mean for the Apostle Paul? Well, the first thing that it meant was this. Salvation is in Christ. The saving work of Christ was communicated right up front to the people who were going to be part of his life, the people that we call part of the Christmas story. And it starts in Matthew 1 saying this, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And if you don't know, the name Jesus corresponds to the Old Testament name Joshua, and it means God will save. So his name literally meant God will save. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then we we ask the question, why is Jesus the key to eternal salvation? 
Well, I think we find out here in Romans 3, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption, the payback, the, the buyback from sin that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a satisfaction or a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, in his patience, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, at the time of Christ, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier or righteous and the one who makes righteous of those who believe in him. God required and does require a blood payment for sin. Adam and Eve were warned that if they transgressed his rule, that the result would be death, both physical and spiritual. And they transgressed the rule, but instead of killing them, God covered them with an animal skin. The animal skin was the result of death, the death of the animal. And what actually happened, according to this right here, God forbear those sins. What that? What does that mean? It means that that animal death was not enough to pay for their sins. But God knew the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ was coming, and so this animal sacrifice was a temporary hold. The Old Testament word atonement means a covering. God was patient and while there was a covering applied, knowing that a perfect sacrifice was coming, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh in part, in great part, so that there would be blood to shed and a death to die to pay for sin. And so he paid for our sin by his death. And God, this, this big word propitiation means satisfaction, it's to satisfy a debt. When you have a debt, you write a check and the payment is made. Jesus Christ is that check that pays for our sin. It satisfies God's demand for payment. That's why there is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so there's only one question to ask, how do I get that salvation? And the salvation comes to us. The death of Christ is applied to us through faith. When we believe in the work of Christ on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, when we believe that he was the Son of God, when we put faith in that alone, we're saved. Now, for most of you, that's a review of the doctrine of salvation. For some of you, that may be brand new. And if that's brand new to you, to you today, I hope that it makes sense. And I hope if you've never put your faith in it, that you will do that today. But here's the thing that I really want to bear down on today. Who can tell me what that's a picture of? Politics. And I've been very careful to include the politics of both major parties. I know there are some other parties out there, and we could have included them too. Because do you know that in this political season, leading up to the presidential race in particular, many of the people who are large donors will give to both parties? Why do they do that? Hedging their bets. Because... 
They don't care who gets elected as long as they have that person's ear. And they know that money is the mother's milk of politics, and if I give them enough money, when they get elected, I'll go in and say, now, buddy, here's what I want. And so they, they ride the fence politically, and we look at it politically and economically, and we say that's smart. But you can't ride the fence in regard to Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. And so when the Apostle Paul says, my summary of life is Christ, when he comes to the issue of salvation, he's saying salvation in Christ alone. The question I want to ask you today is, have you so believed in Christ as Savior that you are absolutely resting in Him Alone for your salvation. The most common other thing that people rest in or try to, try to straddle and keep their foot on one side and the other is their own good works. And they go, well, yeah, yeah, Jesus was the Son of God and yeah, He died on the cross. And there are even some major religions which say, now look, you've got to do a bunch of good things because if you don't do it, you're not going to make it. Your good works has to work together with the grace of God. You have to do some things so you deserve to be forgiven. But you can't do it. You can't do it because every good work that you do is tainted with the sin that's already inside of you. So there's no such thing as doing a good work for God. That's why the Old Testament book of Isaiah says, our good deeds, our righteous acts are like dirty diapers to God. They stink. You've got to be all in, all in, for me to live as Christ. That's all. He's my Savior. That's all. I'm not trusting in anything else. I'm not trying to do it myself. I'm not believing in some some system of multiple gods. I'm in Christ alone. That's the very beginning point for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul knew what it meant to trust in his own good works. We'll read about it later. We'll study it in Philippians 3. And He'd done a lot of good works. But he said, whatever was gained to me, I'm just counting that as a loss. Because I want to know Christ and His righteousness. Have you so believed in Christ as Savior that you're absolutely resting in Him alone? Uh, You know, it doesn't matter whether you grew up in the church or this is the first day you've been here. Are you resting in Christ? Well, to the Apostle Paul, it not only meant salvation in Christ, it meant identification with Christ. Identification with Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, please. First book in the New Testament there, Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is talking to his disciples and telling them what their life will be like and what it should be like. And here's what he says, starting in verse 24, Matthew 10, 24. A disciple, which literally means a follower. A follower is not above his teacher, 
nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Now, what Jesus is saying here is, look, they've called me the devil. They've said, I do these miracles by the power of the devil. If they're going to call me the devil, what do you think they're going to call you? You know, one of the things that's really crazy in American Christianity is we're shocked when people don't like us. What's wrong with you? Why are you making rules to screen us out? Well, the reason's right here. People don't like Christ. They won't like you. Verse 26. Therefore, because it's normal for them to dislike you because they dislike me, therefore, don't fear them. For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed, nothing hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. It's getting easier for God to keep track of some of us. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, because of everything he's just said, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's one thing to believe in Christ and to do so in your heart. It's another thing to publicly claim your faith in Christ. A lot of people start out being very expressive and demonstrative of their faith when they get saved and then they get some opposition and it kind of shuts them down, they push back, and they become kind of a secret agent. But God says, look, there's one person to fear, and that's God. Now, he doesn't mean to live in fear like you're always scared, but he means you should have such a great respect for God that by comparison you have no you fear of other people. Someday we will stand before the evaluation seat of God, not the evaluation seat of, of, of a high school principal or the college professor, or your co-worker, or whoever else it might be. We will stand before God, not before man. And so he says, don't fear man, fear God. And we need to be willing to confess Christ at salvation, as Romans 10.10 says. We believe in our heart, and we confess with our mouth. And somehow, those two things are connected. I understand that that salvation is by grace through faith, and yet the willingness to confess, according to Matthew 10.33, the willingness to confess appears to be tied to the reality of faith. 
And if there's not a willingness to confess Christ publicly, then something is probably deficient in our faith. And if you've never confessed Christ publicly, you need to consider doing that. You need to tell people about it. You need to be open with your faith. I I don't believe you have to stand on the corner and shout at everybody that walks by. But there needs to be an openness, a genuineness. Um, I asked Ruth about her grandkids, and she knows there's ten of them. If I asked you what church do you go to, boom, it ought to drop out. Who do you believe in? Boom, it ought to drop out. It ought to just be part of you. For me to live is Christ, or else not. There ought to be a declaration of Christ at baptism. If you've never been baptized, you are not an obedient disciple, because Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he told his disciples, you go out and teach people my truth and baptize them. Baptism is the primary and beginning declaration of who you are in Christ. Baptism, and I'm pointing back there because that's where our baptistry is, for those of you who are new in our church. We need, to, we need to be baptized. We need to demonstrate our faith in Christ because Christ has asked us to do it. And then we need to be willing to proclaim Christ any time that, that the time necessitates that. I am a Christian. I am a Christ follower. That needs to be my identity. That needs to be my first and foremost identity. Our kids went to Seattle Christian High School, but my son played football for Foster High School in Tukwila. And I was a trainer with the team, and so I wore the same thing the coaches wore when we were on the field. And one Friday, I went to pick him up at his school to bring him and take him to the game, and we was getting out of school early, and I was all dressed, so, you know, big purple and gold letters that says FHS on this sweatshirt, and I'm wearing a hat that's purple and gold, and and I'm all ready to go, and I'm walking through Seattle Christian, and I think their colors were red and white, or red and white and black. I'm walking through the high school looking for my son, and everybody's kind of looking at me, kind of giving me one of those, and I thought, am I here not right? What's wrong here? And then I... I thought, oh, I'm wearing the wrong colors. I get that. But I didn't care because I was wearing my son's colors. That day, those were his colors. The question that this identification brings up is, whose colors are you wearing? And are you wearing them with pride? Have you so identified with Christ that you say, yes, I'm a Christian, and I'm unashamed of it? I gladly claim Him. For me to live is Christ. Yeah, but I'm not going to tell anybody about it. I'm just going to kind of stay back. You know, spiritually, I'm going to stay back here in the corner. Oh, we can talk about the football game. We can talk about Christmas. Are you ready for Christmas? Man, I hate that question. I worship the Lord all year long. Yeah, I have a Christmas tree and all that. Don't worry about that. Are you ready for Christmas? People talk about all kinds of things. Are you ready to say you're a Christian? Not arrogantly, but joyfully. Do you know that being identified with Christ is the one thing that God tells us to brag about? You're not supposed to brag about all kinds of other things. 
You're not supposed to brag about your grandkids, Ruth. Unless they're beautiful like mine. (laughs) They're so smart. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He said, you you should be so connected with Christ, you go, that's my Savior. That's what it means to be identified with Christ. Me and Him, we're in this together. I'm in Him, He's in me. Christ is my identity. Thirdly, for Paul to say, to me to live as Christ, meant dedication to Christ. Romans 12 says the words that many of us memorize as young people. I beseech you or I beg you, I'm asking you sincerely, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The positioning of this verse in the book of Romans really makes it kind of a summary. Because Paul has talked about sin and salvation, and the Christian life, and the place of Israel in terms of being put on God's back burner, all of that in chapters 1 through 11, and he comes to chapter 12, and he goes, now, look back at all of this stuff I've just talked to you about. Do you see how merciful God is? How wonderful God is? I mean, the mercy of God really began to be shown with Adam and Eve when he didn't kill them and send them to hell. He was merciful. And he says, God has been merciful to you. And the mercy of God, the fact that God has not given you what you deserved, either spiritually or physically, but he's been gracious and he's given you a Savior and salvation. He says, that is the basis of presenting your body to God. He's using imagery from the Old Testament, and you know, the idea of a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they gave the sacrifice, the sacrifice was killed, part of it was burned, part of it was cooked, it was, and it was gone. The Apostle Paul says, you put yourself on the altar, and yet you keep living, and, and, and so you are a living sacrifice. You're constantly offered to God. You're, you're dedicated to God. <clears throat> One of the great examples of this in the Christmas story, it's not just because it's in the story, but it's a great example in all of time. When the angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And, and she's just kind of reeling. She's a teenager, you know. And, and then Mary just says, behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's what it means to be dedicated to God. Just say, Behold, the maidservant or the male servant, the the servant of the Lord. Here I am. I'm your servant. A little farther along, the Apostle Paul put it this way. None of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Of course, he's talking about himself. But that's the challenge for us. If I live, is it for me? If I live, is it for God? Listen to this example of of Paul toward the end of his life. None of these things moves me. None of the difficulties, none of the opposition, nor 
Do I count my life dear to myself? Why? Was he despondent? No. So that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. I, I don't know if you're familiar with, I, I should have looked some of these up, but you know there are, there are many times when people have run long races that they collapse at the end of the race. Well, what does that mean? What it means is, while they were running that marathon, they gave it everything they have. Did it hurt? Yeah. Were they thirsty? Yeah. Were they hungry? Were they in pain? Oh, man, I remember that pain in my side from junior high P.E. class. Take a lap around the field. Oh, I hated that. It hurts and it hurts. Well, it hurts in the mar- with marathoners. It just hurts farther out. The Apostle Paul is using that imagery. He said, my life doesn't matter. What matters is that I finish all the way to the end doing God's work. That's dedication. I've seen guys that dedicated to playing football. I saw a young kid want to go back into the game. And we knew he wasn't right, and we took him in the locker room and undressed him, you know, got his gear off so he couldn't play anymore. And the next day, he couldn't even remember what happened. But he was going to play. And in the world, they go, wow, that's real dedication. To what? To a football game. I've seen situations where people were so attached to a relationship that they killed for it. I've heard people say they want to die so they can go be with their loved one. But I don't hear very many Christians say, I don't care about my life. It's God's. And He can do with it as He pleases. Now, I'm not standing here preaching to you, saying I've got this mastered. Is your body, which I honestly believe God uses the word body to make sure we don't kind of come into some separation of mind and body. Like, oh, my mind is for God, but my body is not. You know, when God says your body needs to be dedicated to Him, it's like your whole life, because Wherever your body goes, your brain goes, you know, that kind of thing. Is your body at God's disposal? Behold, the servant of the Lord. Well, the fourth thing that life in Christ meant to Paul was obedience. Obedience to Christ. Um, There can't be real identification, there can't be real dedication if there's not obedience. From 1 John, we read these words. This is the message which we've heard from him and we declare to you, God is light. That's a that's another way to say God is completely righteous. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we're walking in darkness, we're lying and we do not practice the truth. Now, God knows, and I know, that none of us here in this room are perfect. 
And God's God is not saying that if we ever sin once in a day, we're not his child. He's not saying that. Because in verse 9, he's going to tell us how to confess our sin so that we can be forgiven and cleansed. And so clearly what God is telling us is, what is the, what is the, the tone of your life? What is the path of your life? What is your lifestyle? Is it one of righteousness? Is it one of self-centeredness? If we would say with Paul, for me to live as Christ, then our life should increasingly look like Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. We equate loving the Lord with having a warm feeling for the Lord. He doesn't equate it that way. He equates love with obedience. What would you say about a teenage boy who professes love and respect for his mom but he does all kinds of wickedness behind her back and puts on a loving sun face when he's around her. What would you say about, oh, he loves his mother. You'd think that right up until the point where you found out really he's a wicked hypocrite. You know, coming to church is kind of like being around God, I understand he's with us all the time, but we come here and, oh, I love the Lord. Oh, I love I love the, the resurrection and the crucifixion of Christ. Oh, I love the Lord. If you love the Lord, your life should look like the Lord's life. It should be obedient to what he's instructed. The Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ. That's just how I live. That's just who I am. That's just what I'm doing. Fifthly, For him to live as Christ meant worship of Christ. The author of Hebrews challenges us in regard to our love for him. And and in particular, in this passage, he talks about what Christ did for us and then how we ought to do back for him. Therefore, Jesus, that he might sanctify or make righteous the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. He's the the writer of Hebrews is talking to these folks who were primarily Jewish, the recipients, saying, now you know that in Jerusalem they never killed anybody inside the city gates because that like defiled the city. And so the place where the cross was was outside the city walls and he was crucified out there. And, and to the Jewish mind, there's added shame with that. You know, in other words, you, you've been cast out of the city. It's kind of like cast out of the out of the social structure of the people, and you're crucified outside the city. He said, he said, you know that in order to make us righteous, he suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. He said, let's go out and take a hold of the cross and be there with him. Well, how do we be there with him? For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Do you want to go out and be with Christ? Do you want to go out and say thank you? You do that through worship. And worship is not just during this hour. Worship is any time we are... Giving thanks to his name. The fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Yes, it happens when we sing in church. 
It happens when we say praise the Lord, whether we're in church or out of church. True praise comes out of the heart and the mouth of those believers who recognize the greatness of Jesus in dying for our sin. And it issues forth in, in praise and it issues forth in obedience. Um, the choir's going up to Canada today and, and, uh, we're going to be performing in a, a large uh, gymnasium that, as I understand the dimensions, will make it twice as big as this room or maybe maybe even three times as big. And and they have a sound system that we don't know about, and they said, you can't touch it. <laughs> it's like they'll put a microphone out, but you can't touch it other than that. So we're taking our own sound system. Well, we have a lot of pieces here that we use for different things. But I was down in Seattle on Monday um, making sure all the grandkids got a Christmas present with my wife. And uh, and I thought, hey, the audio supplier is here. They'll rent us some stuff that we need, and I'll bring it back next Monday when I go to visit Glenn. Uh, and and so I went over to the audio supplier. Yeah, we got what you need. And I got talking with her, and this is somebody that I've done business with for probably 20-plus years. And I put sound systems in churches and my own churches and all this kind of stuff and developed a relationship with this this lady who's one of the partners and so I'm talking with her, and I said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going, and I described this whole thing. And so she went out to the, to, the, uh, to the rental guy. Now, remember, she's the owner, okay? And she says, don't we have some equipment that we probably won't rent out, and we can just let Dave use? In other words, it's not going to charge me any rent. And he says, yeah, I think we do. <laughs> Now, you all know that it's not hard for me to ask people for money for the Lord's work. But I didn't ask. Do you know why she did that? I believe not only because of what we were doing, but because of some things that have happened in her life this last year. And she perceives the mercy of the Lord like she hasn't perceived it in a while. And because of that, she has a a heart of worship that she hasn't had before. Do you perceive what God has done for you? Do you see the Lord at work in your life? If worship comes hard, if you're more concerned about what people think of your voice or of the words you're going to say when you say praise the Lord, if you're more concerned about that, it's because you don't fully grasp who the Lord is. Get into his word. Open your eyes. Open your heart and say, Lord, let me see you. Let me see your hand at work. And worship. For me to live as Christ, then there should be worship and it should be daily. Number six, for me to live as Christ, for Paul meant suffering with Christ. Certainly, he's writing the book of Philippians from jail. He's there suffering um, we've seen that earlier. We're going to see him refer to that later on. Um, here he's in jail. Uh, dare I say it's a fairly positive kind of jail experience. He's under house arrest. It's not as bad, but he's had some terrible experiences. He's been beaten with rods. He's been beaten with whips. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been hungry. He's been thirsty. All kinds of things. He enumerates it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You can read it sometime. But here's his summary. Here's his summary of, of interacting with the suffering of Christ. 
We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body. There's that word again, carrying about in the body. The dying of our Lord Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be seen in our mortal flesh. We've seen that in the previous part of this chapter, that the Apostle Paul's in jail, but he's leading people to Christ. He's writing to the Philippians to care for them and saying, Hey, what's, this is great. The Lord's at work here. Years ago, I... Uh, Heard about a firefighter who on his first day of the job, his very first day, riding a truck, they had a house fire, and he had a very disturbing experience involving the victim of a fire, and that was his last day on the job. Done with this. What are you going to do when suffering becomes part of your Christian life, if it hasn't already? And we're talking suffering here as in persecution, oppression, for the Lord's sake. I could just about guarantee you, if you go to serve in a third world tropical country, you will get malaria or dengue fever or some worse disease during your career. Is that right? You guys have malaria? No, you didn't. You escaped. I know Iola. Iola had malaria. Missionaries over there now, right home. Oh, I'm so sick. Is that going to keep you from going? Is that going to make you hang it up and go home? I didn't sign up for this. One of our missionaries just recently mentioned in a letter that it's hard to only see the grandkids once every four years. Is that going to keep you from going? If you live to serve Christ, it's possible that the devil will attack you like he did one of our missionaries, causing him to be hit by a truck and as a result having many years of physical problems. Right now, there are pastors in prison in a Middle Eastern country that we know of. There are probably others in other places we don't know of. For proclaiming the name of Christ. But in all of this, Christ is being seen as never before. Are you so focused on Christ that you will be all in, no matter the suffering? That's what it meant to the Apostle Paul to say, for me to live as Christ. There's one more thing that it meant for him, and it meant service. Back in Philippians chapter 1, we, we see the Apostle Paul essentially in this passage reflecting on the possibility of dying. He's in jail. One of the outcomes could have been execution. He didn't know that. He didn't know for certain whether he would go free or be executed. He had no idea what the future held, but he was contemplating it. And in verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, 
you know, all of these things it means to me to live for Christ, but if I died and go to heaven, that would be even better. But, verse 22, if I live on in the flesh, if I don't die, if I stay here, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain with you is more needful. And being confident of this, I know I shall remain and continue with you all. Paul had a dilemma. He longed to be with Christ. Now, if you don't understand, you need to look at the whole of his life. He wasn't saying, I am tired of this life I want out of here. The Apostle Paul had had a vision of heaven. And he knew how great it was. He says, I saw things that are not lawful to be uttered. In other words, God said, you can't tell that. But he had it in here. And he said, man, I want to go to heaven because it is really cool. But then he looked around and he said, but you guys need me. The Apostle Paul wasn't being arrogant. He was living up to his call. God had said, you go out and establish the church among the Gentiles. And so he looked around and he said, you know, there's some more work to be done. I haven't made it to Spain yet. I need to get to Spain. And, and uh, boy, we've just scratched the surface here. And, and, it, and, and, and he says, I'm hard-pressed. I'd like to go. I, I need to stay. And then he said, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be staying. Now, maybe, the, maybe, the, maybe Paul had a word from the Lord, because in that day God gave those kind of things. Maybe he just looked and said, you know, I, I just don't think this is the time I, I'm going to be staying. Here's what Warren Wearsby said. What a man Paul is. He is willing to postpone going to heaven in order to help Christians grow. Wow. John MacArthur put it this way. Part of spiritual greatness is to know Christ intimately and to long to be with Him. But spiritual greatness also includes being totally committed to the advancement of the kingdom and serving Christ on earth. Robert Gromacki said, Paul could see value in both his life and his death, but the Philippians would only receive benefit if the apostle lived. And so I think these words about Christ came to his mind, just as the Son of Man did not come to to be served, but to serve and to give his life. For me to live is Christ. For the Apostle Paul, that meant giving his life to help make disciples no matter the cost. I'm here to serve, not to be served. That's why he's writing to the Philippians saying, Now look, you folks heard I'm in difficulty. Don't sweat it. The Lord's at work. He's writing to encourage them while he's in jail. That's upside down. But that's the way he lived his life. Adoniram Judson was the first overseas missionary sent out from America in the early 19th century. He and his first wife went to India, and a short while later to Burma, where he labored for nearly four decades. 
after 14 years, he had a handful of converts and had managed to write a Burmese grammar. During that time, he suffered a horrible imprisonment for a year and a half and lost his wife and children to disease. Like Paul, he longed to be with the Lord. But also, like the apostle, he considered his work for Christ to be infinitely more important than his personal longings. He therefore prayed that God would allow him to live long enough to translate the entire Bible into Burmese and to establish a church there of at least 100 believers. The Lord granted that request and also allowed him to compile Burmese English and English Burmese dictionaries, which became invaluable to the Christian workers, both foreign and Burmese, who followed him. He wrote, quote, If I had not felt certain that every trial was ordered by the infinite love and mercy, by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. For me to live, what? You know, in, in the modern American evangelical church, in the mainstream, it's really become unpopular to talk about what it costs to be a disciple. Some people like to downplay the word sin. Some people like to downplay the word hell. Some people like to make everything positive, positive, positive. We've talked about some hard things today. It's hard to say no to yourself. That is, that is probably the hardest thing we have to do as Christians, is say no to self and yes to Christ. It's pretty easy to intellectually say, oh yes, I love Christ. But I hope today you've got a deeper snapshot of saying, what does it mean to, for me to say my life is a Christ life. But my parting word of encouragement is here. There is a yoke of Christ. A yoke was a device put on animals to harness them for work. There was a plow to pull. There was ground to be broken up. And so the yoke was an instrument of of work, of effort. And yet, what does Christ say about his yoke? Take my yoke upon me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. The theme that I'm trying to share with you through the book of Philippians is the theme of peace. I believe the Apostle Paul was at peace in jail because he could say, my life is Christ's. Whatever he wants to do with it, that's okay. I'm just here to follow orders today. His yoke will produce rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I hope today that you will take up the yoke of Christ. Going all in for Christ is scary. There's no doubt about that. 
You never know what he might ask of you. But it's also the path to peace and joy and meaning in life. Let's pray. Father, we all we all need to consider your truth today and look at our lives and say, what is my life about? How much of my life have I given to the Lord? How much of it do I want to hang on to? Help us. We are self-centered. Help us to be all in for you today. May we, may we take this up as our, as our goal, as our plan for life. To me, to live is Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.